Radio Lockdown is a Neptune podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> don't say anything funny yet. I don't know if it's recording. I've got to save up all the good stuff, obviously. How you doing there, Darcy? I'm all right. I mean, I'm hungover, but I'm all right. Oh, no. You're hungover. <laughs> this is a very unprofessional way to approach this podcast. Which shush, is... shush, do, do the intro bit. You were revving up to something. I felt the energy. This is now your second career. <laughs> I can't believe it. No, that's fine. I've I've got energy, but I've just got energy now, you know. Um, I've had some banana bread. Uh, Ellen's been making banana bread, which is fantastic. You know, the first week was denial. Uh, I think we established the first week of the podcast was denial. Mm-hmm. And the second week, because you gave me Waterworld, is anger. And so it's nice... We get to proceed through the stages of grief very naturally. Can't believe you didn't like Waterworld. Like, I'm reconsidering our friendship. We'll get. To I that. checked with my brother, by the way, because I was like, "I'm not misremembering that. This was an amazing movie." And he's like, "Yeah, it was great." Look, we disagree on a lot of things, but Waterworld—that shit's awesome. Okay, it's a spectacle. There's a lot of look. There's a lot of good things <laughs> about Waterworld, 1995, the Kevin Costner movie. We did watch the same movie, right? Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's amazing. It's about a post-apocalyptic world where everything is covered in water. It's basically a prophecy, and there are people on jet skis. It's awesome. And those are great elements if you wrote them down on a piece of paper. I think if you took any frame from this film, it's a gorgeous film, right? (laughs) If you were to to watch this with the sound off, it's a gorgeous film, apart from any time Kevin Costner is on screen. (laughs) How? Very dangerous. It should sir. be a great film because the feel of it is like you've got these, you know, cool women who have suffered uh, on a boat. You know how Netflix like divides things up into genres? Cool women who have suffered is like what it will just continue to recommend to me until I die. <laughs> oh, you like Jessica Jones? You're like cool women who have suffered. But specifically, cool women who've suffered on a boat, which is like one of my favorite <laughs> films of the, of the decade, Moana. Clearly, I want, it's basically Moana. I want that job. I want to be one of the little type of monkeys that Netflix hire. That are like, shit. What's a new genre that seems to be appealing to people? Is it murderers, but also middle-aged women, but also gymnastics? Anyway, the upshot of this is Waterworld is amazing. It's like Mad Max Fury Road at sea, yeah. but without Tom Hardy. Which is a shame. The thing I really need to drill down to is just how bad Kevin Costner's character is. Just how incredibly bad the character around which the entire movie is based and on whom the entire film rests. He is so bad at this Look, role. Not everyone can have Tom Hardy's beautiful presence on screen okay tom hardy is very very good in that film but it's because even though his character is supposed to be generally unlikable and unscrupulous his resting face maintains a certain air of mystery where you're like this could be a good guy kevin costner's resting dickhead face is so bad for this film that if you propped up a store mannequin against the mast of the same ship, it would have done a better job at selling this role. Okay, I think I think I'm getting where you're coming from, right? So, like, the Waterworld to you is what Kingdom of Heaven was for me. I'm watching Kingdom of Heaven. It's 
It's got all these elements I should objectively enjoy and like. It's got Eva Green, like women who've suffered. <laughs> cool women who've suffered. Eva Green's attack career. She's amazing. <laughs> I love her so much. But it's all resting on the tentpole that is Orlando Bloom's dumb, beautiful face. I'm just like, shut up, Orlando. Everybody else is out acting you. Sit down. The other film I thought of was Pirates of the Caribbean. Those films were not about Jack Sparrow. And if you made the film about Jack Sparrow, it would just be an unlikable bastard who tries to sell women into sex slavery, as happens multiple times in Waterworld. Oh, yeah, he does a little bit, but he doesn't, ultimately. What do you mean? No, 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 you can't a little bit try to sell women to sex slavery. He doesn't. That's an either-or proposition. That is a zero-sum game. It's been a few years since I've watched this movie, but I'm pretty sure they don't get sold into sex slavery, so... They don't. They don't. He backs out of the deal, but, again, because Kevin Costner is such a bad lead role... It doesn't seem like a gambit. It doesn't seem like he secretly yeah. had any empathy He's for the women. He's not got the Han Solo vibe quite right, has he? It seems like he just on a whim was like, mm, maybe not today. And maybe because I might be able to get a better offer than a piece of paper, which is what he was trying to trade them for. And I know it's a post-apocalypse, but it's a piece of paper. Yeah, paper's important when everything's covered in water. Justin. Anyway, you didn't like Waterworld. That's cool. Give this film to Sam Neill. Give this film... Fuck, put Dennis Quaid in the lead role. No, this film no, is twice I think as you're good. deeply, deeply misunderstanding what this role needs, and it's a hotter dude, but with better acting. It's not Dennis Quaid. Get out of here. Get, get, just go. No, I'm not saying Dennis Quaid would be good in this film. I'm saying that Dennis Quaid does not have resting dickhead face. Well, he doesn't have... A- the face that I want if we're making this movie again. Give this film to Fabio. We were talking about Hercules 1987, which is, I've decided, the film that I'm going to make you watch as Penance. Oh, no. <laughs> Lou Ferrigno would do a better job at selling this role. Okay, so if you're in that genre, just take a little time and watch the OG version of Conan the Barbarian because young Arnie... I know he says some... Like, young Arnie. Young Arnie. Young Arnie would be great for this young role. Young Arnie can I, get I, it. Like, the thing is, Kevin Costner's character can neither get it nor be sufficiently grumpy old man. He's just kind of a guy. What I will a, say... Yes? <laughs> what will you the say? Smokers, yes. The smokers who you told me about and Tina Majorino, those are the two parts of this film that are untouchable. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, there Loves is those. one line, right? And the line is, smoke you. And it's it's the line that has stuck in my head over all of these years. And I'm so glad that you got to experience it now. This is the tangent <laughs> that put us onto this film last podcast. Yeah. And I'm so glad. When you get something stuck so embedded in your head, I don't know, I must have been laughing at something to do with smoke the other day. <laughs> like, haha, smoke you. I'm like, where is that from? Oh no. You have to <laughs> dig back into your subconscious and go, how great was Waterworld? Oh man, it was awesome. And then you make Justin watch it and he and his girlfriend get real mad at you. Yeah, yeah. And usually our side messages are just nice stuff. Like, hey, here's this thing I think you like. Hey, this weird other group chat we're having, you know, side message about other friends that you have, you know, when you do that. And I asked her to hold back as well. <laughs> Because I wanted to have fresh takes for the podcast. Oh, no, I've made Helen mad. Waterworld sucks, man. 
What about socks? I will watch your rinky-dink fucking Hercules. Oh my goodness. It's not my Hercules. It's just of an equal cringe value. Well, mate, then it's, watching it's it now. not fair because I think it has to be something that you love but you acknowledge is going to be flawed. So Look, do you I, need time to think of another answer? I mean, no, because I'm not going to let you watch Charlie's Angels 2000. Yeah, I have seen them both recently. I love those movies. That is a film <laughs> that I would say, oh, I loved it as a kid, but I know it's flawed. Oh, yeah. You know, they played the song Turning Japanese. I can't totally love it. <laughs> but Waterworld is not necessarily that category. It is so so deeply sexualized or it's like woo girl power it's so that film sexualized (laughs) i watched it as a kid so i don't know man that's just how i assume women are i do want to update you Mm -hmm. about a theme song yes theme song connor now that can't be the theme song there's a theme song for when we talk about the theme song theme song i like that that is a sufficiently off-brand senorita So I haven't really heard back from uh, Marlon Williams' people about the use of his song Hello Miss Lonesome off of his self-titled debut album. He is a great artist. I would love to have that song on the podcast. I'm not going to talk about him and his people every week. I feel like that might hurt our chances. What I have got (laughs) for you this week is Mm -hmm. another song about being lonesome. It's called Lonesome Little Raindrop. And... It's from the same archive where I've pulled our news theme, uh, which is an American radio station that exclusively rehabilitate old phonograph tracks. Their one pitch as a radio station is that they never play a song that's less than 100 years old. Isn't the world an amazing place that that exists? It's such an amazing place. And what that also means is... Every single song they play has to be public domain. So, <laughs> by virtue of their sales pitch, I can guarantee that any song that has ever been played on that radio show, I can play at the top of our podcast. So, I've got some real bangers from the <laughs> 19-teens. Strap yourselves in, To guys. drop at the top of the show. Oh, we've got some songs in the works. If you... As an audience member of this show, would like to submit a theme song, we would also love to play that. <laughs> uh, if you know Marlon Williams or anyone in his management team, we would love to play the song Hello Miss Lonesome, or we would love to play a cover of that, but we would also need a license for that. So what we will be doing, I think, week to week, if this is okay with you, Darcy, is having a theme song from that phonograph archive or a similar public domain work i am so very into this yes and we will have a different theme song at the top of the show each week can we play it can we play it can we play it now I love it so much because it reminds me of like Miss Fisher mysteries. That's what I've been watching. So Ellen and I have been watching all of that from the start. 
and that is definitely part oh, of that Oh, full context. So that's a TV show, Australian. It's amazing. It's got Essie Davis in it, and you should always watch anything that Essie Davis makes because she's a god. Uh, basically, Essie Davis, come on the podcast. <laughs> we love you. Uh, middle-aged women thrive off of this, and I am secretly one of them. Miss um, uh, Fisher's Murder Mysteries, the detective show set in the 1920s. I don't think it has any gymnastics, but it definitely has middle-aged women and murder, so it's right up your alley. It's my jam. I know, right? And basically, I am a lonely, lonely, the next scene would either be him revealing to Franny that he's secretly gay and they're like checking out some young dude being like, what a nice fella. Woo. Or he's a hundred percent a murderer and he's doing something creepy with a young girl. He's like, be in my pictures. I'll take you all the way, honey. Anyway, it's game faces on. You going to do your news segment? I think it's time for Justin's breakdown. <laughs> news. In further news from the one boat the Liberal Party didn't stop, passengers of the Ruby Princess cruise ship now directly account for more than 500 cases of COVID-19 across Australia. The Australian Federal Government and State New South Wales Government are both blaming each other for letting the 2,700 members disembark from the Ruby Princess, which has now been reclassified from cruise ship to Plague Galleon. Meanwhile, in an effort to support the arts, recovering coronavirus sufferer Peter Dutton is working to turn The Curse of the Ruby Princess into a pirate romance novel. (laughs) That was all gold. That was good. It's tighter this week. Also, I'm really concerned that I would read that. I would read that novel. You would read The Curse of the Ruby Princess? We will be uh, doing select readings of chapters from The Curse of the Ruby Princess in future. Uh, I feel like Peter Dutton would not write a good romance novel. <laughs> Where do you get that impression from? <laughs> the the 49-year-old ex-cop who has exclusively, as an adult, been a cop and then a politician. Look, if reading Mills and Boone has taught me anything, it's that love can come from unexpected places, Justin, but I don't think it should come from... That minister's mouth. In lighter news, one country doing great during the virus is Turkmenistan. Despite bordering Iran, where the virus took off more than a month ago, Turkmenistan are currently reporting no cases of COVID-19, mostly because President Gurbanguly Berdi Mohamedal has tried to remove the word coronavirus from the national lexicon. Instead, while not mentioning the coronavirus by name, Bernie McCumberdow has ordered government officials to, quote, destroy viruses invisible to the naked eye by fumigating the country with an aromatic, psychedelic herb. Bernie McCumberdow could not be reached for further comment as he had transcended beyond this dimension in order to fight the coronavirus on the astral plane. Oh, no, that country. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. They're doing great. Also, are you really are you really proud of yourself for pronouncing that name right? I didn't spend all of last night learning how to pronounce <laughs> Gurbanguly Berdimukhamidov. I don't actually know the correct way to pronounce it, so I can't can't really critique you on this. But let's let's say it's good. Finally, on the subject of names, what's the one story that comes out every time there's a major health crisis, Darcy? I don't know, Justin. What is it? That's right. <laughs> A pair of twins born in Raipur, India this week have been christened COVID and Corona. Oh, of course they have. Yeah. You know, that's on me. I should have known. In memory 
of the circumstances of their birth, where the ambulance taking their mother Preeti to the hospital was stopped by police several times due to India's nationwide lockdown. But the parents say they might change their minds later and rename their kids something more traditional, like Kylo, Daenerys, or Geodude. See, now, they're all, I don't know about Geodude, I'm pretty sure that's a Pokemon, but those two are murderers, real big-time murderers, not small murders, big ones. Kylo and Daenerys, both names that were on the rise in the last uh, year. Uh, well, sorry, not Daenerys. Daenerys was a bit earlier in Game of Thrones, but Kylo definitely. Yeah, I am going to mark this so it might <laughs> it might help you in editing. Mark this. I'm about to go on a bit of a diatribe about Kylo Ren, and you can definitely cut all of this. But, right, definite big spoilers for the last movie. I haven't seen the last so movie. he has the... Really? Yep. <laughs> Damn it, Justin, you need to watch that. I have several thoughts I need to share. Nope, they can't be on this podcast. And not That's all of soon, them man. are how dreamy I find Adam Driver. Adam Driver's far too dreamy for that role. You know what? Cast Adam Driver in Waterworld. Cast Kevin Costner oh. in Star Wars. <laughs> That's the way to I'll do it. I'll watch the shit out of an Adam Driver Waterworld. We solved it, guys. He looks grumpy all the time, but when he's like, you need to watch the last movie because this will make this so much better, I can talk to you about this one expression he does at a point where you're like, holy shit, where was that? The whole, mm. I'm very angry at you right now. This is the anger one we did denial last week. This is anger. <laughs> I made you watch Waterworld. You haven't watched the last Star Wars. Ah, there is a reckoning that will happen once you've seen that movie, young man. We're gonna we're gonna have a chat about Kylo Ren and my complex feelings about him. That can be next week when we're bargaining. <laughs> that is, it's a lot of bargaining going on in how I feel about Kylo Ren. So we'll index that. We'll come back to it. Um, that's the that's the news roundup. It's not. Is that is that the end of the news? Is there more news for us to learn about? I guess that's the end of the Corona news. That's the this is the end bit where the end theme plays. When we come back from the break, we will actually have another, a new segment, which is a tech support segment with my good friend, Angus. That's cool. Yeah. You don't get to hear it (laughs) because I haven't edited it yet. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Radio Lockdown, a proud member of the Neptune Podcast Empire. Neptune Today is a free public interest science magazine run by me, Justin. I've been doing the podcast that you were listening to earlier. I make it myself with some friends that are smarter than I am and cooler and better at art. If you'd like a copy of our magazine, just get in touch, send us your address, $5 and the name of your firstborn child. We are Neptune Today on all good social media as well as several of the bad ones. You know which ones they are. And you can support us on Patreon. There are different tiers depending on how much you like us. And... It's not a pyramid scheme. So that's good. Hi, I'm Angus. So I'm an IT worker at the moment doing service desk. Sort of been involved in IT stuff for maybe 15 or so years to various sort of extents. And you're a very uh, cool and powerful hacker. Yes. As well. <laughs> so I thought I would just have a general. Uh, chat for a couple of minutes about what it's like to work in IT at the moment. How's it feeling uh, um, in, in the industry? Is it great? Is everything fine? I think there's there's sort of two ways to look at it. You can either be excited because there's probably a huge amount of opportunities that are going to be coming up, um, or you can be struggling because we're absolutely gangbusters at the moment. 
phones don't stop ringing. We're probably doing a little bit more than double what we'd normally be doing. Yeah, wow. Uh, with not enough time to massively ramp up on staffing. What's causing that increased workload? I mean, broadly, that people are staying home and working from home. So effectively, a similar amount of work's being done, but a lot of it's being done online. So it's being done overwhelmingly through things like VPNs or Citrix uh, or other sort of remote access solutions. So, I mean, the work the work that I'm doing is um, managed services work. So it's individuals that are working for the companies that we support or the uh, state and federal government organizations that we support. So it's less, it really requires people to have access to corporate uh, information and material, which is why it's such a big challenge for us, because it's people have to find a way to connect to the sort of the central domain for their workplaces. Most of it is just um, connection to the things like shared drives. Uh, if you need to get files that are on your you know, P drive or H drive or whatever, you, you need to be connected to the network for that. So that's why VPNs are so big at the moment. There's also, I mean, a couple of the, the government ones that we support have infrastructure environments that are locked down. So you have to be connected to their network to access anything. So normally you'd just be on the, you know, the corporate Wi-Fi or you'd plug into Ethernet in the office. But as so many people are working out of the office, that that's when the remote access solutions sort of have to come in. And what businesses do you think are best equipped to handle this? Are there businesses that, that are in that are better placed to address this sort of thing? Yeah, um, I mean, some businesses already had, you know, pretty robust remote access and work from home solutions. There was a couple of businesses that had a lot of people who uh, work out on the road a lot, so they already had things like VPN or Citrix set up. Some businesses, functionally, their environments are already cloud-based. So if you use Citrix to access everything, including email, which a couple of our clients had, um, that's going to be a lot easier to deal with this because people already know how to use it, but they already have access. Probably the best thing though is policy and process. Um, the businesses that have the best processes in place for work from home are probably the ones that will handle it best. Now, everyone's effectively requesting Citrix or VPN, but probably half the people that are requesting it don't actually need it. If you just use Outlook and Office for most of your work, you won't be needing that because um, you can just do it through the cloud. Because someone else can send you the file rather than you needing to be on that server to download the file yourself? Uh, there's a lot of people who don't even really use uh, networked files much, but uh, that is one workaround that's been pretty good, is is getting people who, who can access the VPN to just send files on to people um it's it's a bit of a workaround but uh sort of a problem is if you have too many people on a vpn or too many people in a citrix environment it can cause some pretty big problems they sort of only have enough capacity for a certain number of people uh, and there's licensing issues as well so putting people who don't need to be on it on it is is maybe a bad idea i guess it's, it's fairly similar to the, the whole essential versus non-essential employees debate that's happening broader at the moment Probably one of the other things, though, is, um, and this probably sounds like it's not a big deal at all, but um, the businesses that are happy to quickly change their their policies on day-to-day IT stuff are probably going to do a lot better as well. We had one client who wanted to double their password expiry date, 
and that's a really good idea right now because password resets are something we're getting slammed on because as well people are off the domain so if their password expires they've got to call us yeah of course so if you're all of those kind of really basic it services are they being provided by the same people that are also being slammed by the other work from home solutions do you guys do basically everything yeah within that yeah yeah so basically anything we can do to sort of reduce load in one area is a good idea password resets at the moment or something but the more that the more the businesses can push those to sort of do it yourself solutions probably the better but yeah generally service desks um i mean it does depend a bit on scope mine was sort of anything from password reset up to changing group policy objects or doing exchange administration stuff. Um, For someone that's kind of all-purpose like yourself, you would have been slammed on the basic stuff when you could be working on the more the more valuable stuff in the long run in terms yeah. of connecting people onto networks and, and all of that stuff that's really going to make or break. Um, you're kind of having to, to balance everything at the moment, so any reduction in in IT service usage is going to help you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think one thing that companies could probably do now is um, hire customer service people to just do password resets. You don't really need an IT background at all to do password resets. You just need to be able to log into a computer, get Active Directory, and then reset the password. It's probably something that uh, I guess maybe we'll see a bit more of in the future if demand continues to be really high because of quarantine. Uh, I expect we'll probably see a bunch of sort of level 0.5 service desk people who literally just do password resets. I mean, that sounds great. That sounds like a great job and not <laughs> agonizing at all. <laughs> see, the thing is, I think you'd probably only do that for a few months um, and then you'd you'd get taught stuff and move up eventually. Yeah. Although I suppose if, if that is where the bulk of the work is for now, then maybe it is something that people jump into. They just do that job for a period of time and then they move back into other work. It could be one of those jobs that is a good filler at the moment. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have lost work. Um, that could be maybe something that, who knows, maybe something that happens. That'd be good. I, I definitely think that um, all of the government stimulus should be going into uh, password resets and you may quote me on that. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any advice for companies at the moment that may be experiencing those higher volumes? Double your password expiry length. Most clients have always had them set to about 90 days. If you doubled those to about 180, then um, it's still it's arguably more secure because people aren't going to be just doing the same password and making it one, two, three, four, five at the end. But it also means that you probably have half as many people call for password resets because they've forgotten it or they've had to reset it and it's expired. Otherwise, invest in, in people, invest in processes. Make sure that the people who have access to remote environments know how to use it or so do good sort of user education, send out guides for everything that people need and um, make sure that people are working from home sort of when they, when they need to be as well. Yeah, well, I guess that's the thing. I mean, you can talk about the impact that it's going to have on the IT side, but obviously the main thing right now in terms of dealing with the pandemic is people need to be working from home. Yeah. So businesses just need to, you know, get their act together and make it happen. Yeah, I, I guess my point there is um, if people need to be working from home, don't delay it because your IT infrastructure isn't ready. Push through infrastructure changes that you need to get people working from home because 
anyone that's delaying for IT reasons, sending people home is, is probably going to have some pretty big trouble. On Friday, I had some after work drinks with some mates. <laughs> Still fun. We just used Facebook Messenger, like the video chat option in the end. We're like, oh, that was that was easy. We all have that. We were all chatting on that originally. And it, it didn't drop out, which was really, really useful. But but basically, we figured out that um, my mate has just like a, a cards app, like it's just a deck. So we set it up. We actually had a pretty successful game of Kings. Turns out. Sorry, your audio is kind of turning into a synthesizer. I don't think it's you. I think it's Skype. I think Skype is eating your audio. I don't. I, like, I genuinely don't think it's anything to do with the way that you're recording on your end. Because what it's doing is it's speeding up and slowing down what you're saying. So you'll say something that's 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 you'll just repeat, and then you'll uh, have something that goes really slow, and it kind of distorts it as it goes. Oh, so annoying. Oh, it's beautiful. I love Skype. Anyway, we played a series of drinking games. If anyone remembers the game Fire or Ice, we played that quite successfully. And then we actually played Kings, right? And the guys, the only trick you need to remember, apart from trying to remember what the rules everyone plays for Kings is that will still apply over video conference or video chat, is uh, that for the Kings Cup, you just have to do a shot of something gross. So last night, there was a bit of cheating to begin with because it was just a shot of some quite nice gin and then a shot of Jamison. But by the end of it, it was a shot of chili mixed with whiskey. Oh, <laughs> It was bad. Don't do that. I'm feeling pretty tip-top. And then I get this lovely message from my housemate saying, like, you know, be safe. I'm like, what am I going to do? Fall over? I guess accidents do happen in the home, but it's not like I'm drink driving or getting abducted or anything, you know? <laughs> Sorry, the glitches are so good right now. Keep going. And the crazy thing is, <laughs> and this is my thing, <laughs> the thing I want to, um, well, you know, last week we were talking about a thing that we want to keep. Um, the stupid thing that's come up that I want to keep is the video conferencing with your mates, the video chatting with your mates, because I have friends that live in like different parts of the state. I have friends that live in different parts of Australia and it's been like years and, you know, you message them, you send them memes, you know, you catch up at weddings and stuff and when you can, but we just didn't video chat. We were just like, nah, don't worry. That's this for nerds. That's nothing. I won't do that. And I've chatted to these people in just the best and most connected way <laughs> over the last three days. It's just like, Hey man, I haven't seen your face in like a couple of months. You know what we can do? Use technology to do that. We just didn't before. We're like, oh, national crisis, better check in. And suddenly it's like, oh yeah, no, that's a good idea. We should do that more. I can see your face. That's nice. This is maybe the most perfect setup for the interview with Alicia that we've got coming up. So I might just introduce that. Um, she is an artist that lives and works remotely and uh, she's got some really interesting things to say, I think. I'm just going to cut that straight in. All right. Well, I will stop listening to you and I will listen to you talk to someone else now. How would I introduce myself for a podcast audience? Um, so I'm Alicia Herman. I live and work from the beautiful Riverland region of South Australia. I am a writer and a maker and a creative producer and a community organiser and I work doing that in lots of different ways and in lots of different 
industries and I get to uh, play in lots of different spaces. How long have you been working from home, studying online, doing, like, how long has that been your life? A really long time. So I, um, I've been an external uni student, so studying, you know, fully online for over 10 years. Um, which sounds really bad, particularly because I don't, I still don't have a degree in anything <laughs> because I keep changing my mind. Um, but yeah, so I've been an online uni student for a really long time and in that kind of virtual space. But also because I live regionally and have lived regionally pretty much all of my life, um, I've kind of always been in that remote space in terms of, you know, community building online, uh, attending events online when that's offered. Um, because you just don't have the same access, obviously, when you live in a regional community because it's smaller and the scale is different and, the you know, you have different kind of infrastructure. So, you know, in terms of my my work life and, and working as an artist and a writer and a theatre maker, um, I, at the moment, am employed full-time by two arts organisations in a remote role, in a statewide role where I work from home, and that's been, like, full-time in that position for two years. But I've also, prior to that, um, pretty much always worked on and off from home in other remote roles as well, as well as my own freelance work. So it's kind of been really my professional career as well as my life as a student. Um, and also just on a like a personal level too, like again, because I live regionally, lots of my friends and peers and colleagues, particularly in the arts industry, but also in other ways, uh, don't live where I live. So it, it's always been, you know, in these kind of virtual spaces. So I guess there's a lot that can be learnt from people that have worked from rural areas for a long time. Do you see other people struggling with stuff that you find natural at the moment? Yeah, I think I do. And like, I, you know, obviously this whole period of time and what's happening around us is, you know, destabilising for everyone in lots of ways. And um, it's been quite interesting because what I'm seeing, for example, in some of, you know, the work relationships I have where I've sometimes been the only person that's remote and the rest of the team I'm working with might be working face-to-face and all of a sudden everyone's kind of having to work from home or, or be remote in, in some other sort of way and it, it's really highlighted for me some of the ways that I've taken for granted things that are actually skills. So I've just gone, oh, that's just what I do but actually those are skills that I've developed over a long period of time and now a lot of people are being asked to kind of just immediately be prepared and be ready and be able to work in that way. It's really highlighted for me actually that I have skills I didn't realise were skills and thinking about in that context what's, what can I do to support people that are you know, having that transition and trying to figure that out um, because some people are really struggling with that and feeling quite, quite lost and confused and I think that that's okay, you know. Even just things like thinking about like, what apps to use and you know how do I manage my time and across Australia but also across the western world we have some work cultures that are or can be you know very um time focused and it's all about productivity and in my personal opinion can also be a bit toxic and this uh, as destabilizing as it is it's also a real opportunity to think about some of those structures and think about like actually how am I personally productive like what what is good for me in terms of taking breaks or what time of the day am I actually most switched on? How do I communicate? Um, so, yeah, it's, it is, it's really interesting because for me, 
on a practical level, nothing's actually changed. Like my workday looks exactly the same as it did two weeks ago, four weeks ago, two months ago. Um, yeah, so it's kind of it's weird for me in that sense because everything, everyone else is it's changing for everyone else, but kind of nothing's changed for me. Well, then you you might be the expert we all need then. <laughs> I feel worried for us if that's the case. <laughs> but like, how do you how do you so if if people are kind of curious because everyone's now working in a way that you're used to working. So how do you set up a day? How do you define productivity or or what what is the analog to productivity that you use instead of you know I'm getting this number of units completed per hour yeah it's such an interesting question because I mean in terms of the kind of work that I do um that's it's always been a hard one to quantify in terms of you know number of units per hour anyway so you know the kind of work that I do is so much about relationship building right so it's about you know having conversations with people and building and uh, sharing information so you know some of the ways that I think about measurement uh, in terms of evaluation is actually about you know how I seek feedback from the people that I'm working with both my colleagues um, artists that I'm working with communities that I'm working with so for me you know, the, the the measurement tool, I guess, is really around, you know, what kind of impact is the work I'm doing having? And am I, you know, am I completing work? So, you know, if, I, if I'm if i saying that, I, you know, we're doing projects and no projects were ever delivered, clearly I would not be, you know, meeting my own productivity standards. But, you know, you can see that projects are happening, that workshops are happening, that, you know, gatherings are happening. And, you know, just going back to that online thing, like most of what I deliver is online. So, you know, I'm, I've been delivering online workshops for years and get virtual gatherings and stuff. But so, you know, I can count the number of things that are happening. But then more importantly, I can measure, well, did they have any impact? And so that's, you know, I think always that conversation about going, what is, what is the purpose of your work? So, you know, you can be at work sitting at a desk going, I'm being paid for these hours. But what are you actually doing? What what impact is it actually having? What are you actually achieving? Um, and you know, I work in in an arts context that is also a community context. So it's about we want people to feel more connected. We want people to have creative skills they didn't have before. We want people to feel um, you know connected and skilled and and confident to go and create their own projects. So I can immediately see if the work's having an impact because I see people go and do their own projects. I see people you know applying for an opportunity they wouldn't have applied a year ago. So I'm really lucky in the sense that the work I do, I get to have those really visible and immediate rewards, so I can see you know, I guess the evidence of, of my work or my productivity. It's interesting that the questions that are kind of essential to your work, which are, you know, what impact is this having beyond me and how am I getting things done that aren't just complete but having an influence are questions that, like, have to be asked in your role, but a lot of people wouldn't necessarily consider those all the time for as you say, like an office job, you might just be doing your part of a, you know, production chain or, or a piece of a process. And I suppose when you're working from home partially as well, you might not be, you, you might have to do more parts of the process yourself. Mm. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting too how perhaps, um, you know, this kind of context where we're working from home or working re- remotely, um, wherever you might be working from now or in the future, um, I think in some ways it kind of highlights or, or makes you or ha- certainly has made me more aware of all the bits of invisible work, right? So, you know, sometimes we think about our work in very kind of the concrete stuff around, you know, I've delivered this many projects or there, you know, in the arts world, there was this many audience members or whatever it is, or I've employed this many artists. Um, And that's obviously important and we want to measure that. But there's also all this invisible work that happens, right, around, you know, um, relationship building. And, And like you said, you know, if you're in an office job where maybe it's not about that you know, that delivery, but it's about making sure all the systems run so that everyone else can do their job. It can feel really invisible. Like people often feel really invisible in their jobs. And all of a sudden, when you are completely removed from that environment, it, it can kind of increase that, but also make everyone else more aware of what everyone else does at the same time. So it's kind of, you become like more visible, but also more invisible as well. And I think that's kind of a, a bit of a psychological shift too that is probably happening in a lot of workplaces about going, you know, what does everyone actually do and how, you know, how important all of those bits of the puzzle are and also how important the bits of the puzzle are around how we, um, you know, communicate with our co-workers about what we need and what they need and how we're going to make sure that everyone has what they need. Over the past couple of weeks, it's amazing how quickly casual or unskilled labour has been transformed into the language of essential services. You know, you've got the same people doing the same jobs, but suddenly those people that have been in those invisible roles are essential to the operation of organisations and can't possibly be sent home and, and have to work longer hours. It's really been a, a kind of dramatic shift for some people. Um, yeah, absolutely. Not to get too political, I try to be very apolitical in all things. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I probably tend to go a bit political, so I was like, ooh, how, how, do you want me to like be not political, Justin? <laughs> go for it. Because one of the biggest kind of like the biggest, weirdest bits about it all for me is this whole shift all of a sudden, the way that that's opened up access both for regional folk but also folk with disability who can't access physical spaces. Like, for years, I'm like, you know, you, you get invited to a billion Facebook events, right? And I get into those events. And I'm like, oh, this sounds so cool, but I can't get there because it's three hours away or whatever. Oh, any chance you can live stream it? And you get answers like, oh, sorry, we're not set up for that or we don't have the equipment. And then all of a sudden, overnight, suddenly everybody can do it. And, like, last week I attended, like, four poetry, like, online poetry plans. And so for me, I've had this all of a sudden, my world's gotten bigger, whereas a lot of my colleagues who are used to being able to go to stuff, their world's gotten smaller. And that's been a kind of interesting thing to think about too. Again, you sort of just, you take for granted whatever your normal is. So I've just gotten used to not having access. And then all of a sudden, everybody's online. Everyone's offering all this stuff that I've wanted online for years. And all of a sudden, my world's gotten bigger rather than smaller and that's been that's been weird too especially alongside so many of my friends experiencing very real grief about the isolation they're feeling and I've been on you know in my little bit of the world going oh wow this is amazing and so then there's that kind of oh this I can't be celebrating when people I know are hurting like it's it's been really weird psychologically in that way too because it is having a real impact on people my 
some of my very close family members all found out on Monday they don't have a job as a result of closures and, you know, like really real psychological impacts and practical impacts. Um, and, yeah, I'm sort of sitting in this real weird space and I think that this period of time is going to fundamentally change a lot of organisations and how they work and how they deliver content because they are going to realise that they can reach a much wider customer base or audience base than they ever have before because all of a sudden you can access it from anywhere. A lot of the shows that charge money are now live streaming and they're losing all of that revenue. They're not, you know, having those people come to those shows. Um, But it does really open up the world and it's kind of an inherent contradiction of where we find ourselves that are a lot of people that are producing more art for a broader audience while making less money and and ultimately struggling to support themselves just because they know that what they do is important to people and especially right now when it's harder to meet up and when when people do feel more isolated that point about the um like about the fee structures is really interesting because there's been so you know i'm in closed facebook groups with other artists and whatever because you always are but obviously this whole situation you're getting added to like five million more um emergency responses and whatnot and there's been some really um you know interesting and robust dialogue around like whether to charge or not so, you know, we're offering all of this online content, which is great and amazing for access. And there's, you know, some good arguments for and against whether or not to offer it for free or to ask for, you know, online tickets or to ask for donations. Um, and there's a real fear from a lot of people in the arts in particular, um, but also other kinds of events and experiences that because all of a sudden everything is being or not everything, but a lot of things are being offered for free online, that that's training people to then expect it for free so that then even after this period ends, people aren't going to want to pay for those experiences, which then is going to see less of those experiences and those experiences collapse because, of course, it takes money. It takes real money to produce them and particularly to produce them at a high quality, like artists you know, that's the work they're doing instead of going and doing other work. So if we want beautiful things made for us, then of course artists need to be paid for their time so that they can eat and pay their bills. And, you know, and this is a, a bigger conversation you see about artists and the the work of being an artist that's existed way before this situation. But this situation in terms of people expecting free content brought some of those conversations even more to light in terms of what that means and what happens next if people start to, you know, expect or demand then to be able to go to shows for free. Um, and it's really complicated and there's no answer, especially because, again, we're through a moment where none of us expected and people are really struggling. So, of course, we want to offer beautiful things to brighten people's day or to, you know, give people something to do um, to keep themselves busy and support their mental health. Um, but, yeah, what ramifications does that have further down the line? What impact does that have on the artists and other people that are creating that content? Um, yeah, they're big questions. Yeah, I mean... For me, uh, working on, you know, the the science magazine and now this, the whole revenue model I had was around basically asking for people's charity while I got something going. And now we've got the coronavirus and it feels weird asking people for money for something that you're releasing for free as well. It's a strange kind of tension that's always existed in the arts, but while we've had these, I guess, multiple crises back-to-back, back, it's it's starting to stack up for a lot of people. Yeah, and, you know, especially because it starts to feed into those conversations about, well, 
does art matter? You know, so, you know, if the world is, you know, being torn reds or where we've got bushfires at our door, you know, what actually matters? But of course it matters. And and I think this period of isolation is actually hammering at home even more so for people because that's what people are turning to. You know, that's what people are turning to for comfort and connection. They're turning to, you know, Netflix, music, mind guitar lessons, uh, watching a show, you know, a drawing a day challenge. All of those things have real value to people but we struggle to talk about what that value is in monetary terms. And I often think about it compared to education, right? So education, most of us accept and value is kind of just going inherently, of course, education should be funded because everyone should have the right to education. But when we talk about the arts in that way, we, we don't have that same like widely accepted, yes, of course, the arts should be funded because it's critical, but it, yet it's the thing that everyone turns to for comfort. And I think it's part of, you know, to, again, to get political, but it's the fights that are being set up between what's essential and what's not essential. Mm. You know, the, the idea that teachers and artists need a fight over pay um, and we're going to have a, you know, a free-for-all scrap to see who can get those resources. Um, you know, ultimately, teachers and artists should both be getting funding. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that, and that feeds into that whole conversation obviously around universal basic income, like just going people, (laughs) you know, everyone should have somewhere to live, everyone should have food and then should be able to make choices about how they use their time and their skills to contribute to our society and to our community, Um, you know, and obviously there is complexities in that in terms of, you know, there is jobs that, you know, no one's going to do unless they get some kind of recompense for it. Um, But at the same time, yeah, you know, like we can get into a whole thing about capitalism, obviously. <laughs> I would love to. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it is. I think this this whole thing, you know, it highlights a lot of things about capitalism that aren't working, obviously. Um, and you know, like and conversations around, you know, landlords and rent and people. You know, again, in lots of Facebook groups that I'm in, people who are finding themselves in situations where they're where they've lost a job, you know, overnight as a result of everything that's happening with COVID-19 and they, their landlords want to kick them out and you just go, are you serious? Like you can't, you can't make people homeless when they're the most vulnerable they've ever been, but it's happening all the time, invisibly underneath everything. Like we have huge homelessness issues um, across the country and, in some ways, this punctuation is making all of that more visible for a much wider percentage of the population. Likewise, with how low, um, you know, New Start and Centrelink support is, all of a sudden, people that have never had to think about it are going, how can you live on this? Whereas people that have been experiencing that for years are going, well, of course you can't. That's the point, right? That's what, you know, that, that's the point of the system is to dehumanise people and big stuff. It's a struggle. And, you know, it turns out that when it's half a million people suddenly or, or a million people that are suddenly unemployed. We, we don't have firm numbers on how many people have been uh, made redundant or, or lost work because of this, although there are a couple of people are trying to quantify it. You know, of course, that's what's going to trigger the response, but it would be nice if, you know, that's not what it takes to, to have things change. Just like on that quantifying thing, you probably know, but 
um, there's I Lost My Geek, which is where artists and arts workers and like event management folk have kind of been logging, you know, the gigs that have been cancelled as a result of this. And also they've been capturing some data from the impact of the bushfires as well. And I can't remember off the top of my head what those numbers are, but they're like, they're huge in terms of the, the amount of money that individual people have lost and the, you know, the number of gigs that they've lost. It's a difficult number to look at. I'll add it in post. I'll, I'll pause here. The figure was last updated on the 27th of March and stood at 325 million Australian dollars. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough and it's going to be rough on a lot of people for a, a little while. Um, and, you know, and again, that's the thing about going, what does recovery look like and what does it look like for us to use all the tools and skills we have at our disposal to um you know, to reimagine what things could look like and how we uh, connect and take care of each other, both during this time, but also once we can open the doors again, what does that look like? And and I think there's lots of people having really great conversations about that. And it's that whole thing, right? There's you know a lot of a lot of in this situation we personally can't control, like we just can't, and that's hard and it's scary. Um, but what we can control is our response to it, and we can. You know, that whole thing, right? Do what you can where you are with what you have. Um, and I think that there's some really great, um, you know, efforts to mobilise and go, okay, you know, how, how do we just take care of each other? Um, because sometimes that's just the most important thing, right? What role do you think we can we can play during a crisis like this as, as silly people, as artists? <laughs> um, like we were sort of talking about before, like the arts, is often a place of comfort for people. It can also be a place of disruption and challenge and it has that role and that role is important as well, but it can absolutely be a place of comfort for people. And I think that artists inherently know that because that's part of why artists become artists because that's what it did for us, right? Like it's home. So we understand that it does that and the function that it has and we want to make sure that we we create that home for as many other people as as we can and, and artists will always do that and keep doing that especially in times of crisis but I also think you know one of the things that artists do really well is they communicate and they connect right like art is about emotional experiences and that's that's what art is always about so I think the role that we can play in you know just how we role model what it looks like to and, and this is a difficult thing to say, but but to have grace in times of difficulty, you know, like it's it's easy to be it's easy to be a good person, right? When everything's going well, like it's easy to be your best self when everything's great. Much much harder when everything's falling apart and when we're under stress, when we might not have anywhere to live, when people we love are in danger or hurt or dying. Um, and and in saying that. I'm not sort of trying to suggest that people shouldn't feel those very real feelings. Of course we should. And it's totally okay to feel angry and afraid and confused and to express those feelings. Um, but it's also an opportunity to go, how do I, how do I keep showing up as my best self as best I can? And how do I keep role modeling that for others? We understand, you know, all the depths of the emotional experience and we understand how to communicate and we understand how to connect and that's what communities need most of all when times are rough. Uh, they need to connect and they need to remember what makes us the same and what's worth fighting for and what's not worth fighting over. Um, and so I think that artists can always and do always play a critical role at a community level uh, for our communities and with our communities, but most importantly as part of our communities. Like we're not separate. Um, we're very much a part of our communities. I absolutely feel that. And I, I think as well, 
you know, being able to grieve, you know, we are all grieving and some of us, you know, more publicly than others. Um, and sometimes that is the graceful thing to do to kind of, to, to feel it all. Um, but also, yeah, we're, everyone's feeling it at once. So there is a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a mediation in the amount of, you know, in the amount that you allow yourself to express. Yeah. And I mean, that's always going to reflect our individual personalities, right? Like, you know, it's like with how public or not public we are on social media, just in normal, like in normal circumstances, you know, like some of us are, you know, much private and some of us are much more public and, Again, like that's okay. <laughs> like we're all different, and that is just totally okay. Um, and I, you know, I think just again in normal circumstances, it, you know, <laughs> everyone has to live their own lives and make their own decisions, and that's equally and even more so true when the world's turning upside down around us. Like all of us have to figure that out and figure out what our journey through that is. And there's no right answer. Like it's not like we're going to get graded. <laughs> we're going to go. Oh, you 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 passed the the COVID crisis with a with an A. Um, I hope you know. not, because um, <laughs> I'm choosing to spend it making a podcast. So. <laughs> and again, like that thing, right? Like we've all seen on particularly Facebook and stuff, like some of those things going around. Like, oh, you'll have all this free time. Like, go and learn three languages. Honestly, don't do that. Like, give yourself a break. Oh, wow. Like, just the, the, the forced productivity. Like, who can be productive when everything around us is, you know, being untapped and put back together in whatever way it is? Yeah. Like, just, like, calm down, everybody. Like, have a just, nap. Yeah. <laughs> I think having a nap is a really good idea. I'm going to put some soothing music on after this. People can feel free to nod off to the end of this podcast. It'll just be a lovely sleepy time for everyone. <laughs> I, I feel like that's just like my main like if I'm if you have to give any advice, right? Just like, yeah, have a nap, everybody. Yeah. Have a nap, it's okay. No guilt, no shame, have a nap. What a great interview. Ah. Oh, cheers, man. I assume that was all because of me and not because Alicia is a wonderful, brilliant, talented, multifaceted person. The first thing I thought was, Oh, it's so wonderful that all these things are out there theatres have been putting up their productions online. Uh, when she was mentioning the, the poetry that she'd listened to remotely, I thought, oh, that's so good. But I also have then immediately not watched any of it. Nothing I have been watching has been self-improvement or like expanding my mind because as we have talked about before, I watched all of the Big Bang Theory <laughs> instead. So theatre's been opening up. Mm -hmm. uh, poetry slams have been opening up. The Melbourne Symphony Orchestra have been live streaming all of their performances. And you... The Australian Ballet has been as well. Instead of watching James Corden trod the boards on the West End. So how's the Big Bang Theory been going? <laughs> I have like 30 seconds where I want to explain. Look, by the last season, it's like someone shook them and was like, we have to be like a little bit more woke. Penny doesn't want to have kids. And she talks about how society treats her after that. She does have a kid at the end, but don't worry about it. Amy, the one doing biology stuff and studying the brain, they have her talking about how it's really important for her to have boundaries in her relationship with Sheldon because he can take over and also that she wants to be a good representative for like women in science. And at the end, Sheldon stands up and gives this really lovely speech where he talks about like, I'm difficult to deal with, but my friends helped me and they assisted me to brilliance. 
which is basically undoing his whole mission statement from the beginning, which was, I'm a dick and it's fine because I'm smart. How good! That sounds really good. And I imagine that what that establishes is what the show could have been. <laughs> and... Look, what it, what it established for me was that I needed and could finally be released from this trap I had created for myself. <laughs> and that I'm like, I have to watch all of this. I need to. And I did. And as your friend brought up, the arts have this wonderful ability to bring us comfort in this really scary time. But you don't have to do something that's self-improving. Like, I have a list of things that I'm like, oh, I should really watch that. That'll that'll enliven my mind and I'll, I'll really learn something. But you don't have to do that. It's going to be okay. You can just get through this. And the whole idea that, you know, working from home or different working arrangements or different like broadcasting arrangements for people that has a trouble attending is so interesting. My mate brought it up the other day. She was talking about if you have a disability, a lot of workforces will just be like, oh, we don't have the infrastructure. But now, after all of this, there's going to hopefully there'll be a lot less of that because we can all agree that once an infrastructure is actually in place, it makes it a lot harder to sort of reverse, you know? If someone's used to like, oh, that's Jeremy, he Skypes in to work every week because he has to because of the coronavirus, it'll make it a lot harder to be able to say, oh, you need to Skype in every week for work. Oh, you know, you have care responsibilities, you have to work from home. Oh, you can't because we don't think that works. Yeah, You've literally seen it work for like six, 12 months, however long this thing's going to go. Yeah, and it it came up in the conversation with Alicia and it also came up in the conversation with Angus that improving your tech infrastructure is going to be such a big part of the way businesses improve. And yeah, there are complications in terms of distributing things for free, but certainly within businesses and within organizations, having all of that communication is something that should stick around. Mm. You know, may- maybe not having all of these live shows for free, it, oh, you know, that's yeah, probably no. something we can't sustain. But having all of this infrastructure in place where when people were talking about the early internet and, you know, the democratization of information and the all those good things. way that it can connect people. We're seeing it, like, real time. Yeah, yeah. It's taken this to break down some of the barriers that have been, I mean, I, I've got some thoughts about the big kind of internet conglomerates <laughs> that have stopped the internet being quite so wacky but i think we're seeing some wacky internet shenanigans again which is <laughs> fantastic as someone that is nostalgic for a time that existed before i was born that's great some of the things i've been seeing have been like people offering online courses at like a really reduced rate which i thought was really nice because then the artist is still you know making some form of money Alicia was talking about um, being rural. I grew up rural. We would we would still have things come to us. Royal Shakespeare Company for Australia. Is it still the Royal Shakespeare Company? Whatever. It was awesome. We still got to see plays. Like we had to drive an hour still to go see them, but it was still amazing and awesome and so good that they came out there. And that's what was getting me about um, some of the theatre productions is that they were these really big companies that could potentially, I don't know, maybe take the hit. I'm so far away. I'm in Australia and this is a play on the West End. Um, there's no way I can give you money to go see it, okay? Just give it to me for free, please. <laughs> and there are some ways you can do that, but there's more ways now and that's fun. That access increasing for um, rural kids is really good. I think at the end of all of this, we are going to get a little touch starved, you know? We're going to 
want to be in the same room with people a little bit more. But it's good that this structure is here and that we can access it and be a bit safer. Well, that's that's the other thing that we will absolutely value congregation and being in creative artsy environments. I think those are really going to thrive after this because we will just need to re-emerge from the cave mm. and, you know, come out of hibernation and we will emerge as beanie pasta-y theatre nerds. That is how we all should emerge. Or not. It's fine if you don't. You can just be you can just be heavier and not have learnt anything. That's fine. I'm not, if you I'm stay not saying on... that I'm not saying learning anything. I'm saying uh, full of beans and <laughs> keen to see a show on a stage. Keen to see a show and hug someone. Yes. Just before all this went down, I went and saw my family in rural Australia and I saw my nan and we had set up that, oh, look, we you know won't touch nan because I'm not going to be the thing that kills you. <laughs> Just straight up. It's going to be old age or nothing, young lady. Something that only makes sense coming out of your mouth. Nan says she was, she was thinking about it. She said, well, Dar- Darcy, you've never been a hugger, so it's not going to be that different, is it? Like, Zoom. Oh, nan, so good to see you. <laughs> Woman does not pull her punches. Well, now she's going to have to pull her punches because punching can't people touch. is a great yeah. way to transfer the she's virus. Yeah, going to have to give up that bare knuckle boxing that she loves so much, which is going to be a real problem for her. But, I'm going to have know. to stop bare knuckle boxing her, and that's going to be a real disappointment for me. I was reading something that was talking about, uh, you know, how the WWE is it or the the big boxing federation in in America? Well, that would be the WWF, surely. World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. Mm. WWF is the World Wildlife Fund. <laughs> Important not to confuse the two. <laughs> you might have seen the clips where like they're doing they're doing their big hype up speeches to like empty theaters, and it looks quite quite disturbing but apparently there's an indie boxing not boxing wrestling circuit that is going to be much harder hit and i had this whole moment where i'm like wait now what did you say an indie wrestling circuit i don't understand this world at all i am intrigued an indie wrestling circuit is just fight club right because the arts justin because the arts are really important i brought it back I swore I was going to try and be more on point this time. <laughs> I worked at it. So what do you think of a Jim Parsons Waterworld? Oh, I hate that. I hate that so much. I want to I love every iteration of Waterworld. You know that I do, but I do not. And that's nothing against Jim Parsons. <laughs> he seems like a very nice man. Jim Parsons is great in his cameo in the, the Muppets movie where he plays the human version of the Muppet. <laughs> I think that is, to date, his best role. Yes. Actually, no, his second best role. His best role is Jim Parsons, the likable guy. I think he is nice. I have watched a lot of interviews with him for a guy whose defining role I really don't like. We were talking last week about businesses that we think are going to do super well Mm -hmm. after this is all over. What business do you want to call out? Well, I think it's quite clear from the theme of our show that uh, IT services and businesses that can set up these video functions and people for people are going to boom. So I would predict that uh, the ability to teleconference and any company that has any 
relation to that. Well, it's a super boring one, but I do think that they're going to boo and it's probably not going to stop, hopefully, because then I could work in pyjamas. And that's why I'd like to announce Neptune Traveler, <laughs> our new teleconferencing app. If you want Neptune on the go, if you want to be able to talk to people like you're in space <laughs> uh, with the echoes, all the echoes, all of the distortion, mm-hmm. if you all want to really feel like a robot, jump on the Neptune Traveler. Uh, it's a great, uh, it's more distortion than any other teleconferencing service. You know what? You know how we could wrap this up? Hey, Justin, have you got anything you want to plug? Nah. You don't want to talk about Neptune, your, your magazine that I still haven't paid you for copies of yet? What magazine? Don't worry, guys. You can get copies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, so sorry. No, no, I, um, you're quite right. I completely forgot because I, uh, I don't, I just don't talk about it all that much. Um, I have a magazine. It's a free public interest science magazine based right here in Adelaide. I use it as an excuse to meet smart people and talk about things that interest me. In our first edition, we had instructions on how to build a foam machine in your backyard, which I think you could still do. Probably at the moment. I don't think there are any resources that are banned under the corona restrictions. Oh man, having experiments to do with your kids right now would be, and I'm not trying to prop you up because you know I don't actually know how to do that without sounding like a robot, would be really good. That's a lot of what I've been seeing come out on the internet. It's like, hey, you can do this weird thing with your kids. Make bubbles. Woo! Well, if you would like to make bubbles on an industrial scale, uh, Who doesn't? Neptune has instructions on how to build a foam machine in your backyard. And we've also got some baking uh, in there. We've got some recipes on how to make some cool, colourful burger buns without using charcoal because charcoal is not necessarily a thing you want to use in the quantities that it is used in burger buns. So there's a bunch of stuff in there and there's a crossword. So really it has a lot of idle activities that would be pretty fun while you're stuck at home. I actually, hey, I made a pretty good magazine, hey. You did a pretty good job. Also, you predicted two trends, that people would want, need things to do with their kids and that people would get super into making bread. Can we dive into that at some point? Because why? You can still buy bread. I don't get it. You can't buy bread. Uh, you have to buy my magazine. <laughs> so Justin can buy bread. Justin's got to get that bread to buy that bread. Yeah, brought it back. Bread puns. And by buy, I mean subsidize because uh, we're charging five bucks for it, which is just the amount that it costs me to send it from the post office. Yes. Anyway, it's great. And I'm going to pay to go get it. So you should all do that too. Now, Justin, this was a lovely chat, but as we have mentioned several times, I'm a little bit hungover and would kind of like that nap we were talking about earlier. I fell asleep at one holding most of a burrito that I then woke up at like three and finished. So, you know... <laughs> I've got some stuff to do that involves me being horizontal and not touching anyone. That's beautiful. Let's let this podcast drift off into the world of naps. I'll leave you here with our cool nap time outro song. Oh, I've got it. Nap city, bitch. Nap, nap city, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) See you, man. Bye. See you next week, buddy. You've been listening to Radio Lockdown a Neptune podcast.